Hey everybody, how y'all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, my life has been slowly consumed by Suica Game, for those mm-hmm. who know what that is. Yes, and I, I just barely learned about Suica Game, also known as Watermelon Game, over on this side of the, the ocean. And it sounds amazingly bad and good at the it, same yes. time. Yes, it is both of those things. It is a game that became so popular that they just kind of threw it up on the US eShop and didn't even translate it. They said nope. you don't need you don't need to you don't need this to be translated to know what's going on. There are you fruits don't. in a basket, you combine them, and then you get screwed over. That st- is what this game is. <laughs> the start button is at the top or left of the menu. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Yep. Have fun from there. Yes, it is a it's been a while since we've had a good like flash quality game mm-hmm. come out and t- take a gaming community by storm i guess probably the last one was like among us probably know. oh yeah and that even that was like it didn't do that when it came out it did it like five years later when everyone was in quarantine yeah right yeah it just magically came back to the forefront so you know to have something that just comes out and just takes the world by storm mm-hmm. you know what good on you whoever made that game yep but yeah so me i've um this is going to be a this is going to be kind of a wild episode because uh, as I told you before Alex mm-hmm. I decided to trip fall and uh destroy my body. Right. So I am currently bandaged on multiple limbs <laughs> and in a slightly constant ebb of pain on top of also just not sleeping this weekend and eating donuts because I was sad. Right. Yep. Okay. That tracks. So I have a cup of coffee and I have 10 pages of notes open and we're going to just we're going to have a good time today, everyone. Right. Yep. Nothing like only eating donuts to also pair with coffee to just really heighten that sugar crash. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it's um, it's like any other time I've done that and recorded the episode by hour. <laughs> by the first hour, I am going to be having like hot flashes and shaking. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be great. Especially because today, Alex, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Okay. So uh, two weeks ago, before we we took a bit of a break, I mentioned that in between doing Destiny 1 and Destiny 2, we are going to dig into a backlog of episodes that I've wanted to write, but they would constantly get preempted by something else. Mm-hmm. Usually by a new news story dropping about something else crazy that I'm like, ooh, I should do an episode about that. Right. So the next, uh, I'd say maybe like five weeks or so, is going to be kind of taken up by that and we're going to go more or less in chronological order. So I guess if you want to have like some sort of idea of what's coming up, just look at like whatever recent news stories were popping <laughs> up in the video game world. And you might have an idea. Now, for today's episode, we're going to actually be doing something we haven't done in a long time. And that's this is going to be an extra episode, which uh, for those of you who don't know, fall through plot holes extra is basically an episode where I go. What if instead of talking about plot lines, we just talked about video game history? Because mm-hmm. I just really like doing those sorts of episodes. We don't do them too often because, once again, this is about plot lines. And right. two, these episodes tend to take a lot of research and whatnot yes. and a lot of work. <laughs> but, so, oh, man, is talking about video game history fun. It really, really is. And today's episode I'm very excited about because it was something I had kind of 
forgotten about. Mm. And once I was reminded of it, I was like, oh, wait, this was an incredibly pivotal moment in video game history. Mm. And honest and oddly enough, we're actually coming up on the 10 year anniversary of it. So we might as well just jump right on in, Alex. Okay. And set up why I even thought about this in the first place. All right. So about one month ago, or September 2023, if you're listening to this podcast at a later date, a bunch of emails got leaked pertaining to the court case FTC versus Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> now, these emails were fun. They're, they're Sony email hack level fun. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not learning that Phil Spencer's a secret racist or something like that. <laughs> or UC Medif, like, just really hates Angelina Jolie. Right. Like, not that level, unfortunately, but it still had some nice, fun, embarrassing nuggets yeah. in there. I don't know that we'll ever get Sony hack level again for like a long time. That was sort of supreme. But the, these are good. These are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of to remind you that this court case was the U.S. government's unsuccessful attempt to block the acquisition of, well, uh, Activision by mm-hmm. Microsoft. As part of this lawsuit, the Federal Trade Commission got access to these emails uh, that were internal Microsoft emails. And through some sort of whoopsie, we, I don't <laughs> think we ever found out how, they ended up getting leaked. Now, once again, disappointingly, these emails are kind of boring overall. For the most part, yeah. And it makes sense uh, that since they were boring, most uh, news stories focus on like one particular email exchange between uh, the head of Xbox, essentially, Phil Spencer, mm-hmm. had with Takeshi Nomoto. Uh, who is the current executive vice president and commercial chief marketing officer at Microsoft. Mm. Now, in this exchange, Nemuto asked Spencer and another executive, Microsoft chief marketing officer, Chris uh, Capasolia, I believe that's how it is, Chris Capasolia, why they aren't trying to pursue other companies like Nintendo as a way to increase their consumer exposure and relevance. Now, Spencer responds as... Follows. So this is a direct quote from the email. Mm-hmm. I totally agree that Nintendo is the primary asset for us in gaming and today. Gaming is our most likely path to consumer relevance. I've had numerous conversations with the LT, which I believe stands for leadership team, of mm-hmm. Nintendo about tighter collaboration and feel if there's any U.S. company that would have a chance with Nintendo, we are probably in the best position. The unfortunate or fortunate for Nintendo situation is that Nintendo is sitting on a big pile of cash. <laughs> now he goes on to say, quote, without that catalyst, I don't see an angle to a near term, mutually agreeable merger of Nintendo and Microsoft. And I don't think a hostile action would be a good move as we are playing the long game, but our board of directors has seen the full write up on Nintendo and valve, and they are fully supportive on either if the opportunity arises as am I end quote. Now, Alex, this by itself is very whatever. Mm-hmm. And news sites did like make a lot of hay about it, even though this amounts to absolutely nothing. Yes. Big company wanting to or does acquire other company is such a common thing in the business world, if not just the gaming industry, that the fact that people tried to make the idea that Nintendo wanted to acquire Nintendo or did I say Nintendo, that yeah. Microsoft wanted to acquire Nintendo or Valve into anything more than just a Twitter post by some rando mm-hmm. is well a kind of boring thing in my eyes. Of course, Microsoft wanted Nintendo and Valve. They're both very successful businesses with a lot of valuable assets, right. whether that's Nintendo library of characters or just Steam. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Microsoft tried at one point to find an angle that would let them acquire their rival Sony. I'm sure they did that due diligence. Yep. Now, with that being said, if that was the end of the email, this wouldn't be an episode. 
Mm -hmm. But the email goes on, and it ends with Spencer writing this, quote, I love the discussion and value looking at the opportunities here. At some point, getting Nintendo would be a career moment, and I honestly believe a good move for both of our companies. It's just taking a long time for Nintendo to see their future exist off their own hardware. A long time. He then ends it with an ASCII smiley face. So this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it takes a lot of hubris for you, the head of Microsoft's game division, mm -hmm. easily third place out of three to say that Nintendo, mm -hmm. whose own Nintendo Switch gaming device has shipped at this point 129.5 million units, uh, which is over 100 million more than your own set of current gen consoles, the right. Xbox Series S and X, and itself was a top-selling system in 2022, despite being six years old, it needed to be recognized as, no, this is not your path to success. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to talk, because there is so much hubris in this email. As mm -hmm. you said, the idea that the current losers of the console race mm -hmm. being like, oh, yeah, we're the path to success. Like, let's, let's even put aside the consoles for a second. Okay, yeah. there was a line in there that we at Microsoft are... We see that gaming is our best path to consumer relevance. Mm. Really? Yeah, right. Then how come you're doing such a terrible job at it? <laughs> Let's go through Microsoft's current lineup. Halo mm -hmm. is in the worst place it's ever been. Gears yep. of War might as well be dead. Forza mm -hmm. and Flight Sim continue to truck along, but they're niche genres. So the fact that they are basically the only high-quality games in your stable at the moment, kind of dire. Yeah. Uh, sea of Thieves exists, continuing to, I suppose. Uh, mm -hmm. Starfield came out. Yeah. Redfall also came out. And <laughs> I honestly can't think of anything else at the moment. It's, um, there's definitely other games that have come out earlier this year. Um, there's, you know, Hi-Fi Rush and whatnot and, and all that sort of stuff, but. Oh yeah, I guess that is under Microsoft's umbrella, technically. It technically is. And it is. It is relevant to include that Game Pass is a big part of their business model, and they have claimed it is very successful. It is also, of course, like any other streaming service, completely opaque to numbers. That, yes. So we, we have no idea if it actually is successful. but we, we have no idea, but I feel like the murmurings that have come out are, yeah, it's successful, but they're also losing a lot of money on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're still currently like taking really big swings and maybe not necessarily getting the returns they want. So the idea that Microsoft, in their current state of affairs, could seem appealing to Nintendo, mm. not just in a merger, but like as an acquisition, mm -hmm. is like, yeah. in what world? In what world do you think you seem like the right person, the right company to buy Nintendo right now? Right. And also, it betrays an understanding of Nintendo that I think people often have mm -hmm. of, like, Nintendo's ever going to be for sale at any right. point. Yeah, it, no. Easily no. one of the most independent game companies that has ever existed. Like, would literally do anything and any anything different. And right. just, like, yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. It, it also betrays, like, a complete lack of understanding of Nintendo as, like, a cornerstone of Japanese economy and kind of culture at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, oh, yeah, they're just going to let an American company buy them. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure, man. <laughs> yeah. 
And like, it's always possible that this email was just like Bill trying to assuage like a Microsoft exec, but it's still crazy that this got written. And it ends up just being kind of completely, completely bonkers overall, because once again, it just has no place in reality. Right. Now, in order to really drive this point home, and because I'm just feeling a little petty today. Yeah. How about we just go over what are the top 10 best-selling video game consoles of all time? Yeah, let's do that. I should mention it's actually consoles and portables, and I also have the caveat this list is from Wikipedia, but I still think it gets the point across. Sure. So the best-selling consoles are, number one, the PlayStation 2 at over 155 million units. The Nintendo DS at 154 million units. The Nintendo Switch at number three with 129.5 million units. Number four, the Game Boy and Game Boy Color, which I don't agree with putting together, but whatever, at 118 million units. They, they like were said, like I'm petty. Yeah, they were like backwards compatible. They had the same basic architecture, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Also, otherwise, the Game Boy has like no library to speak of. I would, that I would disagree. But that's it has like time. Tetris and Pokemon. <laughs> this is a Kirby's pinball slander going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, the PlayStation Four at 117.2 million units, which I was like, "Whoa!" Geez. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised the PS4 is up that high, but okay. Yeah, and no, it outsold the PlayStation at 102 and a half million units. Wow. Number seven, the Nintendo Wii at 101 million units. Number eight, the PlayStation 3 at 87.5 million units. Number nine, the Xbox 360 at 84 million units. And then number 10, the Game Boy Advance at 81.5 million units. Okay, I'm surprised the Game Boy Advance is that low, actually. I thought it was more popular than that. That's, on, uh, yeah, that, I was also surprised by that. I'm like, that somehow was not like number five? Really? Yeah. Huh. Now, you may have noticed that Nintendo systems make up roughly about half that list. Mm -hmm. And from a multitude of different eras as well. Almost like their place has always been in the hardware business. Almost like. Sony's also very well represented mm -hmm. as well with four systems. But if you look closely at the very bottom, you see one little <laughs> funny outlier. The Xbox 360. Oh, you mean <laughs> the only Microsoft console that ostensibly won its console generation race? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Remember the Underneath Xbox its competitor? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, just just that little thing. <laughs> Alex, did you ever have an Xbox 360? I did. It was a really good machine. It I loved really the 360. Cool. Yeah, I didn't own one, but I recognized it was cool. Had a lot of cool ideas going mm -hmm. on there. You know, I was a PS3 guy, and even then, I I bought a PlayStation 3 like halfway through the life cycle. Right. Yeah. And I did so because I like Ratchet and Clank. What can I say? But that, those uh PS3 Ratchet games were real good. They were really good. Yeah, 360 was a very forward-thinking system with a heavy focus on online play, downloading games, getting achievement, mm -hmm. all sorts of things, right? You know, had stuff like Gears of War on there. Bethesda Game Studios would put out Oblivion and Skyrim on there. That would be the place to play them, arguably, even over PC. Yeah. And Call of Duty can all, like, all tie their success to the Xbox 360 in one way or another. It also had a little throwaway feature that I adored. And even Microsoft doesn't recognize, which is uh, you could bring up your own playlist at any time and oh, it, would mute, it would mute the game's audio track and play your music instead. Yeah, that was a really cool ho holdover from like the original Xbox. Yeah. Except expanded upon. And then, yeah, they just 
They got rid of that. And it's like, no, why? Yeah, why Why did you get... Because, yeah, you're right. Like, the original Xbox had that feature, but games themselves had to implement them. Yeah. And this, it integrated it into its, like, universal operating system API. And mm-hmm. so you could just do it to any game. And it yeah. ruled. It was, yeah, it was absolutely awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Yeah, and then the Xbox One, it's like, well, you can bring up the Groove app or what the fuck ever. And I'm like... Yeah, it's just snap the Groove app to the side of your oh, screen. Oh, God, just... I, the freaking app snapping interface is so bad. It was so <laughs> bad. God, the Xbox One's interface was so bad. It, it was rough, man. It was rough. So, yeah, like, by the end of generation, like, the Xbox 360 was the industry leader. Poised mm-hmm. to do basically what Sony did to Nintendo and Sega with their PlayStation 2. Right. But here's the thing. They kind of let it all slip away. <laughs> A little bit. Because, see, Alex, today's episode isn't about the Xbox 360. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know what it's about. Yeah, that's right. It's about the disastrous launch of the Xbox One. Uh, so good. <laughs> Alex, did you ever, you know what, did you ever even touch an Xbox One? Mike, I own an Xbox One that I bought near the launch. Oh, no, of the why? Thing. I will tell you why. Okay, I had five reasons. Sea of Thieves. All right. Um, Recore. Oh, geez. Scalebound. Yes, but oh, oh, no. The Phantom Dust remake. And I can't even remember the fifth one. So two games that didn't exist, two games that underwhelmed, and a fifth one that might as well assume not be real. I assume was also canceled, yes. You're probably not wrong. Oh, dear. It was dire. Yeah. Uh, actually, the fifth one might have been the Master Chief Collection, which was a mixed bag. It was a mixed bag. It, it took them a while to fix that one. <laughs> yeah. It's a good product now. It, it took three years before it became a good product. It's also on the PC now, so. It, yeah, which is honestly probably the preferred place to play. Yes. Yeah, so I never owned an Xbox One. I, I went PlayStation 4 all the way because, That's well, fair. yeah. We, we will get into the reasons why it's called. <laughs> There's an entire episode that's going to be dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. Now, this episode, uh, when I wrote this, so I guess give a little inside baseball how I write these episodes. You know, I, I write them throughout the week and I do mm-hmm. have like a, a, a script essentially in front of me. Keep myself on track. And sometimes, though, as time goes on, I write more and more and I realize the scope of it changes. I have to kind of make some pivots and maybe split episodes up into two parts. Like, this is going to be a two-part episode, which is going to make this line where how I say today's episode is about the disastrous launch about the Xbox One and not about the Xbox 360 kind of a lie. Hmm. <laughs> because today's episode, in order to set up even why the Xbox One is a failure, you kind of had to dive into the previous console generation. Because a lot of the decisions they're going to make with the Xbox One are doubling down on ideas that seemed good at the time with the 360, Mm -hmm. or failures that the 360 had that are going to influence decisions they're going to make in the future. Which means today's episode is actually a lot about the Xbox 360. Okay, fair. Whoops. Oopsies. (laughs) But that's all right, uh, because once again, I think this is going to be very important. Mm -hmm. And... In order to do this, we might as well just kind of jump into this and explain by how Microsoft even got into this position in the first place, which oddly enough starts with a caveat. Uh-huh. Now, some astute listeners, and actually you kind of picked up on this as well, Alex, might have noticed I said something a bit weird. The Xbox 360 won their generation, despite just earlier saying the PlayStation 3 sold 87 million units compared to the Xbox 360's 84 million units. Mm-hmm. 
kind of hard to claim the Xbox 360 won much of anything when its competitor outsold it. Right. And to that, I have two points. First is the worldwide sales. Now, non-Windows Microsoft products have traditionally not sold well outside of North American markets. Mm -hmm. And to highlight this, let's take a look at the Japanese sales figures for both the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360. In that region, the PlayStation 3 sold roughly 10 million units over its entire lifetime. The Xbox 360, on the other hand, sold a paltry 2 million. Oof. Yeah, in the European region, it wasn't much better. PS3 outsold the 360 by about 5 million units. What this means is that Microsoft made the bulk of their sales in the North American markets in England, oddly mm -hmm. enough. Hmm. Now, Michael, you might say, that's not fair. Sales are sales, and no matter how you break it down, the PlayStation 3 outsold the 360. And I say to that, true. So let's take a look at this from a second angle, sales over lifetime. From November 2005, the release of the Xbox 360, to December 2009, the 360 is going to sell 14.9 million units compared to the PlayStation 3's 7.5 million units. Now, the PlayStation 3 released a full year after the 360, so this is slightly unfair, except mm -hmm. if you look at the total difference in sales between the two. At the launch of the PlayStation 3, there were 3 million more 360s to PS3s. By 2009, though, there were 7.5 million. Mm. Now, obviously, Sony's going to eventually make up this gap. But this is going to be via discounted prices on their systems much later down the line, and this will have consequences. And the best way to illustrate that is to go via software sales, or how a hardware company actually makes their money in this industry. Right. In the first 23 months after release, the 360 sold 35 million units of various software, both first and third party releases. In that same time span, so from the release of PlayStation 3, 23 months on from there, they sold only 25 million. What this ultimately translated to was a 35.5% market share for the 360 compared to the PlayStation's 17.9% market share. Now, there are a bunch of other factors in play that are going to affect profitability for both companies, some that we're going to talk about in a bit. But I think my point is illustrated, mm -hmm. that Microsoft seized the early initiative and only gave it up at arguably the least profitable point in their console's lifespan as they right. prepared for the next big thing. They were in a similar position I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so at the very least, if they didn't like decisively win, they were at, le at least like Sega with the Genesis. Exactly. Yeah, they were, they were primed to basically capitalize on their success. And much like Sega, they are going to completely <laughs> submarine it. So once again, similar position to Sony at the end of the PlayStation 2 era, or actually the end of the PlayStation era, mm. a settled fan base hungry for the next generation, ready to crush its enemies. Now, it's important to understand this in order to realize just how badly they're going to fumble eight years of work over a few short months. Because <sighs> that's the thing. Like, the 360 mm -hmm. was out for a long time. Yeah. No, that whole generation was, like, so long-winded that mm -hmm. when the next generation had a honestly average console lifetime, people were mm -hmm. like, what, it's already over? Yeah, right. They're like, oh, wow, we're, we're already moving on to this? Or, or we're then, already talking about, like, a half-step? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, those half-step consoles came out three years into, like, each console's respective yeah. lifespan. Yeah, it was really—that's just a really weird generation overall. Oh, it did. It was insane. Yeah, like, ugh, God. Just bad overall. Like, Not—it it was not good. That generation sucked. The Xbox One was bad. The PS4 was good, but then Sony proceeded to fumble that. Mm -hmm. And then the next generation kind of came out, but also kind of didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, it's 
games are in a much better place the, now than they were like five years ago. It's it's yes. quite nice. So yeah, that's kind of like the stakes that like Microsoft has at this point. So let's go on to the other side then. Let's talk about how Sony got themselves into this mess. Mm-hmm. The PlayStation 2 is the most successful home console ever released by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. It's possible Nintendo Switch will maybe match it at some point, but even then, they've still got some gap to make up there. Yeah, and they're running out of steam to do it. They certainly are, although it was the best-selling console last year, oddly enough. Mm. Like, well, I mean, it, compared to the Xbox whatever and the PS5, if you can find one. Yeah, that's true. You still have a hard time finding PS5s nowadays. So that is good context. Yes. Now, while it's hard to call the PlayStation 3 itself a failure, mm-hmm. it does take a lot to put yourself in a position where you're arguably the third most successful console of their generation. Right. And, and there's a lot of complicated reasons for this, but probably the biggest flashpoint involves something that's going to become very ironic next episode, a pretty disastrous E3 conference. Now, with the release of the Xbox 360 in 2005, Sony had found themselves lacking behind their main competitor with their PlayStation 3 system slated for launch in November of 2006. Because of this, they needed a big splash at E3 2006 in order to help stem the stronger-than-expected sales of the 360 and make the PlayStation 3 the premier product of that year's holiday season. Mm-hmm. Now, I love Sony's E3 conferences because they're either going to be the best thing ever Mm-hmm. Or they're going to be very infamous. And what resulted in was maybe one of the most infamous E3 presentations to have ever happened. Yeah. The, um, maybe one, like, one of the first, like, early, like, widespread gaming memes was of just a five-minute video of Supercut of stuff <laughs> involving Ken Kutaragi, the then <laughs> president of Sony Computer Entertainment, saying things like, It's Ridge Racer! Ridge Racer! And, you know, talking about things about how expensive their system is going to be or the giant enemy crabs the and whatever happened crab. and whatever happened with that Warhawk demo. <laughs> now, what really sunk the show for them, though, was when Ken Kutaragi announced the price of the PlayStation 3 as five hundred ninety nine U.S. dollars or four hundred ninety nine dollars with less storage space. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever really pays attention to that price anymore. They focused on that five ninety nine. Right. This, combined with comments after the show about how this high-end, nearly $600 price tag was probably too cheap, drove consumers to the Xbox 360, mm-hmm. especially since it was priced at $299 on the low end. I want you to keep in mind that $499 price point because it's going to come back around in a really funny way next episode. Oh boy, oh boy <laughs> is it. Yep. So, very disastrous E3 conference. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that this wasn't going to be the end of the PlayStation 3's errors that they're going to make because, oddly enough, Ken Kudaraki was probably not wrong about the system's price tag being cheap. Mm-hmm. Given that at the time of release, it cost Sony roughly about $820 to produce a single unit. Oof. Now, loss, um, loss leading like this is not uncommon, but typically it's more like the price difference could be like $100 to $150 per unit. Right. Like, you'll sell them at $150 loss and then make up for sales with software on the back end. Mm-hmm. Having it be over $300 is kind of disastrous. Yeah, it's not great. Especially because they're going to have systems just lying on store shelves. Right. Uh, the combination of that big of a loss on sale plus such a high price point, 
mm-hmm. it's like you're, you're just not gonna, man. It's not yeah. gonna work. It's not going to work at all. And it didn't help that they were just constantly shooting themselves in the foot with messaging all mm-hmm. throughout this. Like, on top of Kudaragi saying things about how the price tag was probably too cheap, he would say things like, we want the consumers to think to themselves, I will work more hours to buy one. It will teach them <laughs> discipline. <laughs> that one was a fake quote, but it was okay, part of a Kotaku. Fair enough. It was part of a Kotaku article where they put real quotes from Kudaragi <laughs> aside fake quotes. And the fact that that one is even believable should just uh-huh. tell you what the messaging was like, right? Yep, yep. And like, that included, like, um, Sony Computer Entertainment America spokesperson, uh, uh, David Karakar, like, saying in response to Nintendo's own console, the Wii being perpetually sold out is like an impulse buy, $250. It, like, it reinforced the image of a company that was out of touch with its core audience. Right. Once again, remember this for next week. So this is the 06 E3 pre- conference, right? That's correct. Was the 05 conference the one where they confidently just waltzed on stage and showed off all those Target videos that were complete lies? Uh, yes. Okay. So on top of this, I feel like it's worth pointing out that at E3 the year before, they had made the most hype with mm-hmm. what they were promising and showing off to people that the PS3 is going to do. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of come on stage in 06 with like, here's video games. They look pretty nice, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's um, here's this game with the, with the crabs that looks kind of bad. And yeah. here's... Here's Warhawk that you can control with motion controls, except it does not work. It does not work. It doesn't fly well. Uh, but look, it's, it's Genji, it's a new Animusha without mm-hmm. Samanosuke. You all want that, right? Why doesn't it look as good as the Killzone 2 target demo? Because that wasn't real and won't be for another five years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, Microsoft was just as guilty of this. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. There is that Madden 2006 demo that was supposed to be running on native hardware, and it was definitely not. No. Video games have barely caught up to how good that demo looked. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, needless to say, like, this, like, really, like, one more thing is, like, I looked really hard for this, but I could have swore that, like, as part of their kind of, like, large hubris, like, this is a premium product that they put out, like, PlayStation 3 wine glasses. Ah. And I couldn't for the life of me find them, mm-hmm. which means I think I just kind of made that up in my head. That could, it seems like it could be real, though. That's the thing, though. It could be real, right? And that just reinforces just what people thought about the Sony brand at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, needless to say, they put themselves in such a hole. And Sony's going to claw this back, but it's going to mm-hmm. take them the better part of five years to do so. Right. And in the meantime, Microsoft's going to enjoy their newfound success, albeit with one major mistake that's going to cost them a little over a billion dollars. <laughs> Alex, I'm sure you're familiar with the Red Ring of Death. Yeah, oh boy. Mm. My my roommate's 360 got one of those, and that was it. Did he only have to replace it once at least? Yes, only once. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, so this is about the part of the episode when I realized that we are going to be talking a lot more about the Xbox 360 because the Red Ring of Death is very important in the story of why the the Xbox One is going to fail. Mm -hmm. And it's, oddly enough, not going to have to do necessarily with the hardware itself as much as the shakeup that's going to happen in the aftermath. Right. But we got to talk about it. 
and we will keep it short. In an effort to get as many systems out of the store shelves in time for the systems release in 2005, Microsoft basically cut as many corners as they could during the Q&A phase of product testing. So this combined with using parts that were not rated for the large amount of heat the system caused meant that these systems were going to have a shocking amount of failure. Hmm. Like the failure rate of, um, of, a per- of the percentage of consoles out of 100 was at some point like upwards to 68%. Jeez. Yeah. Now, this what happens is that when they would have a general hardware failure, it would be noted on the front of the system by three red lights that would form almost a ring, hence the red ring of death. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't exactly know what caused these failures, mostly because Microsoft refused to release their findings. But what is known is that, once again, some of these test batches were turning failure rates of anywhere between 32% to upwards to 68%. And it wasn't isolated to one particular set of boards and one particular set of parts either, which is what makes it so complicated. Right. In order to get as many systems out, Microsoft had to contract out with a lot of different companies for a lot of different parts. And so one board was different from another board, which actually is why this problem is going to be so widespread and also so prolonged as well. Mm -hmm. Now, according to an article published by VentureBeat, Microsoft knew about this high level of failure, but went forward with full production anyways over the concerns of engineers with experience in this area. Now, the console ended up getting released, and as would be expected, a shockingly high amount of consoles would have general hardware failures. Now, at first, Microsoft tried to ignore it, and for most of 2006, they successfully did. But by 2007, the rate of failure was so high that they could not any longer. Some customers were on their third or fourth 360 by that point, and it was clear that consumers would start to move on to the PlayStation 3 if this continued. Right. Also, rumors of a class action lawsuit were starting to bubble up to management. That'll do it. Yep, that was probably the real impetus to this. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter Moore, an absolute legend, Mm -hmm. then the head of the Xbox division, sat down and laid out his plan to Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer. What they were going to do is that they were going to send every expected customer a box with a FedEx shipping label and a promise to repair the system and send it back. Now, it's unknown how much this would ultimately cost Microsoft, but it is estimated to be just north of a billion dollars. Peter Moore at the time said he sat down with Ballmer and... When Balmer asked him straight up, hey, how much is this going to cost? He just kind of looked away and said, about $1.15 billion. (laughs) And apparently Balmer, to his credit, was just like, all right, cool, do it. We got to save the brand. Mm -hmm. Now, so that's exactly what they did. Uh, Funnily enough, by the way, Alex, this Mm -hmm. this is a funny little thing I found doing research. In... 2021, Microsoft is going to sell a poster depicting the Red Ring of Death for $25 each <laughs> to celebrate the anniversary of it. <laughs> That's so messed up. It is so messed up and just I have such mixed feelings about it because on mm. one hand, I, on one hand, it's very funny. It's it a very is. very funny you, thing. You gotta respect that level of like being able to laugh at yourself <laughs> but also charging money for it. Yeah, right? Oh my god. Yeah, it's good. So once again, because of all the different parts issues, Microsoft's going to have to deal with issues involving the Red Ring of Death up until 2009. Like by 2009, the failure rates can be down to about 16% of all consoles, which is Mm -hmm. still abysmal, but at least better than what it was. But the fact is is that the fallout of these issues is that Peter Bohr is going to leave the company in 2007. Hmm. 
Now, this is going to be set up as him going back to the Bay Area to be closer to family and to take new opportunities. It is generally accepted, at least generally accepted from the articles that I read, that this was him being pushed out of the company. Right. Which would leave Peter Morin. This would be now the second time that Peter Moore left a a gaming company kind of in shambles. <laughs> <laughs> Last time was with the Dreamcast and Sega. Although this time it's not going to involve him telling Yuji Naka to fuck off. So, right. Once again, Peter Moore, absolute legend. I love the yeah. guy. Yeah, maybe he should have done it again. Just like, I know Yuji Naka wasn't involved this time, but just look him up and tell him to fuck off. <laughs> yeah, just give him a call, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know he wanted to. Yeah. Now, the I person- want to right now. You know, I kind of do, too. <laughs> Just every once in a while. Yeah. Now, when Moore leaves in 2007, he's going to be replaced by the star of the show, in a sense. And this is the reason why we had to talk about the Red Ring of Death. Because the mm-hmm. man who's going to replace him is a one Don Matrick. How is he familiar with Don Matrick? <laughs> I actually, the name isn't ringing any bells, oddly enough. Oh, man. I don't... Did I blank this entire portion of history? Who is this man? Don Matrick is going to be the reason why the Xbox 360 is going to kind of right the ship in many ways. Mm. And he is going to be largely the reason why the Xbox One is going to fail. Uh, he's going to give some very unfortunate quotes near the end of his tenure. Okay, uh, I will going to... probably recognize them. You probably will. Yeah, he is, um, he's kind of an amazing person because he's going to have a very Ken Kutaragi role in the whole thing. Mm. And so because that, we kind of have to talk about him because he's, he's kind of had a very interesting life in the video game industry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his personality is, I think, is going to influence some really, really bad decisions. So to talk about Don Matrick, he was born on February 13th, 1964 in Canada, and he's a lifer in the video game industry. With his friend Jeff Sember, he co-founded Distinctive Software in 1982 at age of 17. I, I didn't include this, but there's a very funny anecdote where he tried to get a job at a game store like when he was like 16, and they told mm-hmm. him, no, we're not going to hire you. And then the way this article writes it, they don't give any context of how this even worked out, but he just, I guess, showed up at the store and started working anyways. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, they talked about how you just hang out and just see what people bought and whatnot, and apparently did work the register, which I I don't know how that works, but it just seems very bizarre that mm, you'd be yeah. told to go away, and then he'd come back the next day and just be like, all right, I guess I'm just working for free, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's how Canada works. I don't know. Maybe it is. It's from a Fast Company article that's very fawning about him that we're mm. going to be referencing multiple times through this, so... It's light on details on that part, and I really wished it wasn't. Yeah. Because it sounds nuts. But regardless, he founds this company, and this company basically worked on doing a variety of ports, such as like Test Drive and Outrun for various computers, such as the Amiga and Commodore 64. Okay. And they're going to find a lot of success with this. Enough success that by 1991, they received multiple unsolicited offers for acquisition. Now, Matrick, being a pretty good business guy, saw an opportunity here. And instead of taking any of these offers, he just kind of cold called Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts, to see, hey, would you like to acquire us? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And for one reason or another, Trip Hawkins was like, yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) And so DSI was acquired and incorporated into Electronic Arts as Electronic Arts Canada, later renamed EA Vancouver and still exists today, actually. Mm. 
Yeah, it's the one of the few acquisitions that Electronic Arts is going to make where they aren't just going to unceremoniously shutter them like years <laughs> later. Now, what this means for our story, though, is that Matrick is now an employee at Electronic Arts. Okay. Because he's not going to just, like, take the money and just, like, run after this. Right. He's going to stay on, and because of this, he's going to work in various parts of Electronic Arts, most prominently in their sports division. He's going to work with Electronic Art, uh, EA Sports and help shepherd along various products to fruition. He's going to be credited. I don't know how big of a role he really played in this, but he's credited mm-hmm. with helping make FIFA one of the biggest properties that EA has. Wow. Yeah, and given where EA is going to eventually end up with FIFA, FIFA is arguably going to be their most profitable product by, I'd say, mm-hmm. at least 2010, if not earlier. Right. This obviously makes him a very big deal within the company. He's also apparently going to have a hand in helping Shepard along The Sims. Once again, it doesn't give a whole lot of detail, this partic- the particular articles I referenced for this, as ha- as to how exactly he did that. Right. But he is credited with that. Okay. Now, he's eventually going to get promoted to the head of Worldwide Studios at Electronic Arts, so basically just overseeing all of the studios. And he would serve in this position until he retired from Electronic Arts in 2007. Now, despite, you know, retiring in his early 40s, he was almost immediately recruited by Robert Bach at Microsoft to help serve as an external advisor for Microsoft's entertainment and devices division, which is what Xbox fall, fell under at the time. Now, when Peter Moore stepped down from his position as the head of this business, Matrix was almost immediately offered the job, which he accepted. So what was the Matrix tenor like at Microsoft? For that, we're going to reference an article published by Fast Company that was published in July 2nd, 2013, right after he left Microsoft to become the CEO of Zynga. Now, this is an incredibly fawning article and one Mm -hmm. that I would not normally trust by itself, but has some very interesting anecdotes about his managerial and general lifestyle that I think, particularly in this context of it being pretty fawning, are very illuminating. So upon arriving at Microsoft, Alex, He's going to supposedly walk up to a whiteboard and write 100 million on it and then immediately say, that's how much we're going to make this year. Now, the team at Xbox almost immediately balked at this because the Xbox's vision was projected to lose about $500 million due to the whole Red Ring fiasco. Right. Okay. Now, Magic was unimpressed by this, though, saying, if you can convince me that my math or logic is wrong, I will listen. If you can't, then this is what we're signing up for. Now. Further in the article, we get a bit more into how he set out to achieve this. And we're going to get a lot of really fun quotes from various people here, such as, quote, Don is a hard ass, says Michael Pachter, an analyst at West Bush Morgan Securities. Xbox head of marketing, a Microsoft lifer named Yusuf Mehdi, described it as, if people don't deliver, they got to go. He doesn't have patience for that. Even as a young executive at Electronic Arts, Matrix succeeded in getting the company to ship games on time by, quote, scaring the crap out of people, says Bing Gordon, Electronic Arts' former chief creative officer, who's now a partner at venture capital firm Klein, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. So he basically gets in a thing about being very autocratic. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's going to, who more willingly will basically tell you how, what you're doing wrong and give you the idea that his managerial style comes up as something that exercises high pressure to get results and that you're only as good as the next thing you can deliver. Now, to his credit, this does seem to work. Electronic Arts is a very successful company under his tenure, 
and Microsoft's interactive entertainment division is going to turn its fortunes around. And while I don't know if they made $100 million that year, they are going to get out of the Red Ring disaster and back to profitability. Now, to further characterize how he is, let's talk a little bit more about how he is in his personal life. Because he's noted to be an introvert, yet at the same time is considered a very autocratic boss, unafraid to criticize anyone, whether it's subordinates or superiors. However, his general glibness and impatient drive did come with a fair bit of criticism from within Microsoft as being a person who was very detached and like mm-hmm. not enough around company headquarters. Mm-hmm. And also had a kind of a tendency to kind of just like mouth off in ways that would kind of get him in trouble. Right. Uh, something that, once again, is going to come back and really, really bite Microsoft as a whole uh, when the Xbox One comes out. Mm-hmm. Now, there's probably no better way to highlight this by noting that during his tenure at Microsoft, he didn't live in Redmond, Washington, where they're located. Right. But rather, he lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, that's a two and a half hour drive minimum to the Microsoft campus. Right. And so he typically worked from home, Mm -hmm. uh, a home that at the time was noted to be the largest in British Columbia. (laughs) And that when he wasn't working from home, he would commute via private jet. Okay. Yeah, so it gave him an air, particularly to the employees at Microsoft, of somebody who was just kind of like above it all. Right. Very, very businessman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very businessman who seemed to kind of like trade off the idea that he was rich and powerful, which uh-huh. was noted because he's also would happily talk about how he's on the USC Film School's board of directors and how he would casually drop that, oh, hey, he would hang out with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, who are both board members. Or like how he just like randomly would drop it a quote in uh, this particular article when he was interviewed by the uh, the person who uh, who wrote it as how he was going to a hockey game later with his friend Wayne, which is Wayne Gretzky. Uh-huh, right. Like, st- stuff like that. Uh, yeah. We could go on and on, but I think we kind of get the point, right? Mm-hmm, yep. So, Magic is going to be pretty pivotal to the Xbox's success, but once again, he's going to be largely responsible for his failures as well. And it should be noted that under his tenure, Sony and the PlayStation 3 are going to capture, catch up to Microsoft and the Xbox 360 in the end. Mm-hmm. To kind of get into like some of the things that he's going to do that's going to set up the 360 for success, but also set it up for failure down the line, we need to talk about two big things to kind of close this show out. Mm. The first is that we got to talk about something that's not even video games related. Don Matrick and his team, one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to negotiate with Netflix to bring the service to the Xbox 360. Okay, that makes sense to do. It makes sense to do. And at the, right now, as I'm saying this, you can watch Netflix on basically any device you have. Right. Like It is almost impossible to not have the Netflix app on every device, mm-hmm. uh, whether you have an account or not. <laughs> but here's the thing. Back in that day, that was not common. Right. Now... The Netflix app, when it debuted on the Xbox 360 in November of 2008, that was one of the few places outside of a web browser you could actually use that and use mm. their streaming service. Right. Now, it was a laughably bad deal at the time <laughs> because you needed both the paid Xbox account and have a paid Xbox Live Gold subscription to even right. use the service. Mm-hmm. But despite this, it was a heavily used app on the system. And it was a bullet point for subscribing to Xbox Live Gold in the first place. Right, because it was one of the few ways you could hook Netflix up to your television. It was. And there's actually a lot of comments back in the day of not only that, but also that the picture quality on the 360 was actually better than if you viewed it in a web browser. Mm. So it was not only was it 
one way you could actually hook it up to your TV. It also just looked better. Right. And so, like, at first, like, this didn't seem like a particularly big deal, but very quickly, Microsoft touted it as a bullet point that they basically had an exclusivity deal with Netflix. Okay, well, that's mm, that's yeah. advertiser speak, but I get what they mean. Yeah, and it's not going to last long because a year later, both uh, Sony and Nintendo are going to scramble to make their own deals with Netflix because they're going to see that, oh, wait, no, this is a good idea. We need to do this. And like their implementation to start with is going to be kind of bad. You mm-hmm. need to actually have a disc to put into your system right. in order to play them. But eventually, Sony, first off, is going to dish that entirely and just going to go completely app-based. Nintendo mm-hmm. is not going to be able to avoid that because just Nintendo Wii just can't. <laughs> watching netflix on the wii was just always hilarious to me it always was but it was a very popular way oddly enough yeah well i mean if you have a wii which a lot of people had a wii they did indeed yeah it was it was still a good way of doing it um although if i remember correctly later later on like it ended just becoming like kind of a bad value because you couldn't view it in hd there's there's a whole the whole thing with it, but people stuck with it long enough that eventually when Netflix did drop, like, support for the Nintendo Wii, there was an outrage. <laughs> That's an entirely different story. Entirely different. Yeah, but the point is, is that eventually more people are going to use the PlayStation 3 to watch Netflix and the 360. Mm-hmm. But it's important to note this because alongside the Xbox 360's native ability to download and play movies from day one mm-hmm. the system released, right. it showed Microsoft that there was a market and appetite for this sort of thing. And it's hard to overemphasize how much this is going to play into the identity of the Xbox One. Because it's going to take, it's going to teach them that, hey, we can make something that's more than just a video game console. It is, oh God, it is poison in their cup. It is. It, just, it is. It's the thing that's going to plague them to this day. Mm-hmm. The thought mm-hmm. that, hey, maybe video games aren't the answer for our video game system. Yeah, right? Yeah, when it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Video games already answer to your video game system. Like, a big reason the PlayStation mm-hmm. 3 comes back is that they doubled down on their first-party development. Yeah. <laughs> but by the time Microsoft realized that, it was too late. Mm-hmm. Their video games were already kind of in shambles, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, they are like, I don't know, what about Gears of War Judgment? And it's like, no. No. No, says everyone. <laughs> Right? Yeah, like, yeah, you see you see exactly where Microsoft is going to make a lot of money off of these two services, and you see how they go like, okay, we need to double down on this, failing to see how that is going to just destroy their credibility. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, a lot of their implementation of how they're going to go about it is just going to be dumb from the get-go. Like, you can make a multimedia box and make it successful. Yeah. But at the same time, the fact that this gives them the idea sets them on that path. Right. And that we then come back to Phil Spencer's quote of, we see the video game market as our most direct path to consumer relevance. Mm-hmm. Wow, gee, it's a shame you didn't see that 10 years ago when you could have done something to build that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, time for mergers and acquisitions, I guess, then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to defend Phil Spencer a little bit, he has... Mm. Him and his team have done an awful lot to kind of save that in terms of like doing things like backwards compatibility. And yeah. Fantasy Star Online 2 over, even though there's mm-hmm. really no reason to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, no, y- y'all needed to start that a lot earlier. Yeah. And also, boy, the backwards compat. 
okay, legitimately, the backwards compatibility on the Xbox One is the best reason to own that console. It really is. The fact that you can play like Halo 1 or Panzer Dragoon Orda in HD 60 frames. 60 frames per second like it's the best those games have ever been that mm-hmm. feature is amazing the fact that that's the best feature in that console is very sad it kind of is and it's going to be really depressing when we get to the next episode and talk about backwards compatibility mm-hmm. because oh boy oh boy did they fuck up the messaging around that feature so badly oh yeah and it's when I like, run into it, it's somehow even more tragic. Again, it is an amazing, incredible thing that that machine can do, and mm-hmm. they just present it in the worst possible way. Yep. Yep. If you're backwards it, compatible, you're truly backwards. It. They are. It's the best 360 emulator ever, anyone's ever made, and maybe the best Xbox emulator. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Like, straight up. It is an incredible software that machine is running. Mm-hmm. And they just undersell it so hard. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. They really do. So yeah, there's that portion to it. Now, to close out today, we do have to talk about one more thing that's instrumental to the 360 success mm-hmm. and a big reason for the one's downfall. Yeah. The Microsoft Connect. Oh God. I really <laughs> did not want to have to talk about the Connect this much. <laughs> But we got to talk, talk about the Connect. Talk about an amazing thing you sold wrong. Yeah. Oh, man. 3D spatial camera. Consumer grade 3D spatial camera. Mm hmm. An mm-hmm. amazing piece of hardware. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that you just turned into a joke. Yep. Yeah, a joke that at first was very profitable and then was an albatross. Yeah. It- Let's let's talk about this thing because the Connect is mm. is a legit. As we just said, we just said it, it's a legitimately uh-huh. cool device. It is now for those of you who are not familiar, the Connect is a depth sensing motion camera that can be trained to recognize objects and follow their movements. And like this is like literally any object. You know, mm-hmm. you could you can make it a rock and it'll it'll know that it's a rock and it can like map it out and follow its movements. Yeah, you know, and and this thing costs what a hundred dollars. It was $150. $150. So pricey, but still, for what it's capable of, man. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. And for the object that the Kinect is going to mostly focus on, that object is going to be people. But the idea that the camera was going to be used to make the person the controller. Mm-hmm. Now, so much of the underlying architecture was pioneered by a company named PrimeSense. And the story goes is that... They developed these first cameras. These, they first developed these cameras and showed them off at the 2006 Game Developers Conference, where Alex Kipman, the then general manager of hardware incubation at Microsoft, saw these cameras and was rightfully impressed. Mm-hmm. Microsoft had actually been attempting something very similar, but had like no success in getting the idea anywhere close to being viable. Right. In fact, in 2005, they had re- relegated it to their boneyard, which is. Kind of a catch-all term for like ideas that are good, but just the technology isn't there yet. So they can right. revisit it, but it's on this, it's on ice essentially. And like this is hardly a new concept. Like Sony had the PlayStation I all the way back on the PS2 or the PS3. I can't remember if they're yeah, PlayStation PS2. 2. Oh yeah. Where again, it was like a camera that can see objects and map them to digital uh you know, digital assets. Yeah. 
And that, again, interesting idea that the technology wasn't there and they never found anything really good to do with it. Yeah, no, they they unfortunately did not. And but here it seems like they finally hit on it. And now the thing is, is that like these early cameras still had a ton of kinks to work out, right? Mm -hmm. Like for one thing, they were too big and they were too expensive. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that Microsoft would work with PrimeSense over the next few years to get it close to a commercial product. Right. Now, the idea is that this was going to take a long time before this was going to come to fruition. But something's going to happen that's going to kickstart the process. Uh Uh-huh. And that thing, we kind of need to talk about the elephant in the room that we've been sort of dancing around this entire Mm -hmm. time. Yep. Uh, Because the 360, if you really want to get technical, they didn't win that console generation. No, they did not. Not even remotely close. No. That was a little system called the Nintendo Wii. Oh, I love the Nintendo Wii. Nintendo's worst popular system. Also true. (laughs) (laughs) A great system to play Nintendo games on, a bad system to play anything else on. Mm -hmm. Now, the Nintendo Wii came out in November 2006, alongside the PlayStation 3. And the machine was kind of thought of as kind of a joke to the lead up of its release. Mm-hmm. Like, this is something I think people kind of forget about, but people were making fun of everything about this. Right. Those two GameCube slapped together to make an incredibly weak system. It had a dumb name. This, <laughs> Boy, did it. it. The name is admittedly still dumb. The decision to make a, once again, a relatively weak console compared to Microsoft and Sony. The mm-hmm. emphasis on motion controls and a really weird controller that looked like a remote. Right. Uh, it just lent itself to a fair bit of mockery in the press and from the competitors. Which is, of course, why when it was released in that November, it was the biggest thing in the world and for months felt nearly impossible to find. Yep. I drove two hours like <laughs> out of state in order to buy mine because there was one available in Las Cruces. And I did not regret that decision. <laughs> Sat down and played 10 hours worth of Wii Sports right afterwards with my friends. And it was great. Yep. Wii Sports ruled. It did, and it's alongside those mo- those said motion controls were a big driver in its success. Mm-hmm. It showed that gaming could not only be different, but more inclusive. A big thing about the Wii is that it's going to bring in a lot of new consumers who previously mm-hmm. had been intimidated by the increasing complexity of video games. Yep. Like my dad, who um, really loved the Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Nintendo, kind of fell off of video games. Mm-hmm. He bought a Wii. And a lot of other people did. He was actually one of the people who used Netflix on the Wii for a long time, which was great. Mm. Um, Now, this success immediately lit a fire underneath Sony and Microsoft because both of them were caught off guard by the success. Uh And they both attempted to create products to more directly compete with Nintendo. They learned the completely wrong lesson from it. They totally did. As did Nintendo, by the way. Sort of. Sort I, I think. N- I, n- I, mm. I, I think Nintendo, when they moved on to the Wii U, did recognize that motion controls were not necessarily the way forward. Right. They just decided to make a lot of other bad other, decisions. Yes. Yeah. You're you're correct. They they didn't learn the same wrong lesson that Microsoft and Sony did. <laughs> yeah. They just. They just decided that maybe we should continue the Wii name, and everyone went, "No, you're going to no. confuse the products." Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> Which then Microsoft looked at that decision and said, "Well, Nintendo surely knows what they're doing." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if we did it twice as much? We're going to name our follow-up system the Xbox One X, and then the follow-up system to that the Xbox Series X. 
Uh, yeah, geez. Uh, Microsoft has never been able to name in anything. It's amazing. No. no, they've somehow gotten worse at it. They somehow have. So yeah, what each company is going to do is going to be interesting. Sony's going to basically do what they... This is going to be kind of a shot at Sony. It, yeah, go ahead. They deserve it. They're going to create a product that's basically a copy of what Nintendo did. It's kind of Sony's MO. And usually it works yeah. out well because they usually just do a better job at it. Mm-hmm. Not this time. PlayStation no. Move is... Well, the PlayStation Move actually is a better product. It's just the implementation of it is... Right. Like, the games I around mean, it are bad. Yes. I mean, yeah, once they get it to like the PSVR stage... Mm-hmm. Like it's actually working shockingly well for what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's not smoke and mirrors like the Wii Mote was, right? But yeah, it's it, it doesn't work when it's on the in the PlayStation Three era. But I mean, also to the Wii Mote's credit, you can run that thing literally off candlelight. You can, yes. Yeah, which is which is really really cool when you think <laughs> it, about it. It kind of is, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, did you lose your sensor bar because it's tiny and fragile and has the worst wire ever? <laughs> Light some candles. You're good. Yep. There you go. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. So, like, Sony's going to do that. Microsoft, at first, was going to do the same thing. They mm-hmm. actually were working on, like, a Wiimote sort of uh, device. Right. But then they said, this is stupid. We have <laughs> this stuff that's kind of hanging out over right. here. What if we just use that? Mm-hmm. And so they began what was called Project Natal. So Project Natal's goal was to create a depth sensing camera that would have a greater motion tracking capabilities than either the PlayStation Move or the Nintendo Wii. Mm-hmm. Now, who exactly decided this was the best way to go was up for debate. Uh, according to the Fast Company article I mentioned previously, they basically laid all on Don Matrick's feet, mm-hmm. uh, basically him rescuing it from development hell. Mm-hmm. Other articles I've seen have mentioned that this was already an ongoing project being shepherded by Alex Kipman, who just mm-hmm. got the final approval from Matrick. But regardless who is ultimately responsible, Matrick is going to fall in love with this device. And as this Fast Company article describes, quote, We just started playing around with it, recalls Mark Witten, the Xbox chief product officer. And we got these cool demos. Don would say, Did you just see how everyone came out of the room smiling? What if we made that happen? End quote. So this produces a lot of excitement. And so Kitman's team is given extra priority to get this project out as soon as possible. And over a 22-month development cycle, they did just that, albeit with having to overcome some significant technical hurdles. Uh, one of them being is that, like, it's easy to walk out from the view uh-huh. of the camera. So they yep. put, like, a little motor in there so it would just, like, turn a little bit to, like, focus on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another was that they realized that this camera was going to be expensive as all get out mm-hmm. because it turns out doing motion sensing requires processing power. Yep. And originally the Kinect was going to have a microprocessor dedicated mm-hmm. to just powering the thing. Mm-hmm. But they decided instead to offload that and just put all those duties on the 360 itself. Right. A move that will save money and make the device cheaper to consumers, but it's going to totally hamstring the type of games they can make for Right. Even those games made directly for Kinect are going to have some issues with motion tracking in some situations because, unfortunately, it's going to be pretty underpowered. Mm-hmm. So even though it should be able to do things like recognize you crossing your arms or whatnot, if you do do that in a lot of games, it just freaks out. <laughs> There's a really fun demo out there of like somebody basically doing like dancing with the Kinect and it's just mm-hmm. like the avatar just freaks out. Right. Really, really good. And it's like you're you're at a total... 
no-win scenario in that. Mm. Yeah. Because either you do that and it doesn't work very well, or you, like, Sega CD it and no one buys the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, either it's too expensive or it's underpowered. Yeah. Yeah. And with the way the technology was at that time, you you had to go with the cheaper option. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even in the stripped down state, like Microsoft saw, saw potential and they were like, yeah. OK, we're going to go all in on this. They put out a nearly $500 million ad campaign for the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And like at tie-ins with like Pepsi and other companies, they had like a big Times Square like like party and whatnot to celebrate its release because this was still the Steve Ballmer era when they would just do that sort of thing. Yep, right. Uh, so, and to be fair, it was gonna work for them. Mm-hmm. Like they were going to promise this game was that the user could be used as could the user would be the controller. You mm-hmm. would have the ability to play games through a whole body and even navigate the system's menu through gestures and voice commands. Instead of, quote, cumbersomely with a controller. Uh, okay. We we need to talk about motion controls on... No, sorry. We need to talk about those connect menus. They're the <laughs> worst. They are the absolute worst. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> they absolutely They're are. the worst user interface I've ever seen. I saw Minority Report. Huh? I know how cool that's supposed to look. Yeah. I know what was going through your mind. You didn't do that. The funny Hold thing is, your hand over the button for three seconds to click. What are you insane? Yeah, right. <laughs> we could do this instantaneously with a button or some kind of remote, but what if you were the remote? And the answer is, <laughs> what if I didn't want to be? And the funny thing is, like when it gets to the Xbox One, they are going to do the full Minority Report sort of thing, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. I mean, it no. works, but it's not necessary at all. Yeah, yeah, it's. But for but there is one person it did work out for. Mm-hmm. And that person is technically a corporation called Microsoft because it's going to earn them a ton of money. <laughs> right. So reception to it was overall positive, and they're going to sell about 8 million units over a two-month period, mm-hmm. despite, once again, a relatively high price point of $150 per unit. Now, this is going to amount to roughly about $1.2 billion worth of sales. Mm-hmm. And while that's not necessarily profit, given the ad campaign and development costs and whatnot, it's hard to look at it as anything other than a massive success. Right. What's more important to our story, however, is that this success means that the Kinect is going to be tied to the Xbox brand in a way that it will make it the future of gaming, in Microsoft's eyes anyways, whether <sighs> anybody really wanted it or not. And there was certainly a vocal contingent of fans who were not at all impressed with the Kinect and what it would right. do. Uh, a lot of a lot of really angry posts back from like 2011 of people being like, "Oh man, these casuals playing video games." So uh, I'm just gonna say that like there there are those people who are like gatekeeping about this and being like, "Ah, oh, this is uh, casual shouldn't be playing video games with motion controls." Like, okay, whatever. Mm. The more important thing that Microsoft should be looking at right now is the Wii was not the only motion controls on the market. Yeah. When the PS3 launched, they had a huge push on their six-axis gyroscope controls. They did, yeah. And it bit them in the ass so hard that mm-hmm. they had to retroactively retrofit games to allow conventional controls because people didn't want it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, not only that, but they just completely doubled back on that control and went, okay, there's just a DualShock 3 now. Right. Yeah, it's 
like that like i didn't include this in here but yeah like it honestly makes it all the more galling that they doubled down like a second time and went playstation mm-hmm. move yeah the wii was successful because it's like wait but you failed at this once <laughs> but but they knew at it they at least knew okay the move's gonna be like a side project and we'll see how it goes yeah that is very true, because, yeah, like, the move yeah. didn't take over Sony. The way right. to connect is going to take over Microsoft. Right. And the, the lesson is right there. The motion controls are an interesting, like, are, are an interesting development, and there mm-hmm. is momentum behind them, but they're not always going to work out, and you need to leave yourself an out. Mm-hmm. You need to. You absolutely need to. And that's the thing. Microsoft with their next system is going to make it in such a way where they can't because they're going to make the connect integral mm-hmm. to the Xbox one until they suddenly decide not to, of course, <laughs> but that's, right. that'll be for next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. There's, there's so much tied to the hip in a way that Sony just simply was not right. But yeah, it's stuff like this. That's going to drive the success of the Xbox 360, right? Mm-hmm. However, by 2011, really more like 2012, Sony had finally started to catch up with Microsoft, largely due to a heavy focus on first-party games, such as Ratchet and Clank, the Uncharted series, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Something Microsoft was starting to lack in the latter half of the generation. Early-generation first-party 360 games are great, right? Yes. It's amazing. To, yeah, but then you get to the latter half, and you have stuff like Gears of War Judgment or Halo 4 Guardians. I, I didn't get a chance to... I was going to bring this up before. Hmm. The fact that gears of wars like incredible phenomenon level popularity starts and ends on the 360 Mm -hmm. amazing yeah you burn through that entire franchise in one console generation they did they really absolutely incredible you could argue (laughs) they did that with multiple like generations like yeah yeah, i mean they did that with crackdown Oh, God, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Crackdown being good was like one game long. That's very true. Crackdown 2 is not very good. But, you know. Yeah. (laughs) But no, you're right. Like, the the 360 saw the birth of a lot of, like, really strong first-party franchises that just were never popular again after the 360. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that when you think about it, it's like, oh, well— but that process started at the end of the 360 while it mm-hmm. was still a viable, viable platform. Because, like, who talks about Halo 4 Guardians anymore? No one. Halo, yeah. Halo 4 sucks. It does. It's a bad video game. Bad game. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it's reasons like that that Sony's able to catch up, like, so quickly on them. Mm-hmm. Well, quickly maybe is the wrong word, but it's able right, to catch up by they, the end. They, they get there, yeah. Yeah. On top of all that, issues relating to the expense and difficulty of making PlayStation 3 games and PlayStation 3 systems had also been largely solved by that point. Right. Like, they were going to get down to the point that I think the average PlayStation 3 is going to cost, I think, like, $150 to make. Mm. Which, like, fair, that's a fair bit better. And, like, they're going to do aggressive, like, price cuts to make it a viable competitor to the Mm -hmm. 360. And, like, latter half PlayStation 3 is a pretty damn good system. It's, it's incredible. No, I'll say it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, like, ugh, go on about cool decisions they would make about letting you buy Japanese-only games and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But anyways, still, Microsoft was in an excellent position to capitalize on their early success. Right. Seeing the su- I, I was just going to say, I think the, the way to sort of outline it is the 360 starts with Gears of War 
and mm-hmm. ends with Gears of War Judgment. Yeah. The PS3 starts with, I don't know, let's be fair and say, like, Resistance is probably the best you're going to find. Mm-hmm. And ends with The Last of Us. Yeah. Which, hell of a game to end on, right? Yeah, incredible. But you mm-hmm. want to talk about, like, the contrast of life cycle course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like, Sony had a follow-through that yes. Microsoft did not. Yeah, Microsoft had a burst out of the gate, but it was starting to fall off by the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, like, there's nothing to say that even though they had a fall-off, that they would not necessarily continue that success going forward, right? Right. No, yeah, there is there is definitely something to move forward on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, according to Microsoft themselves, they had a lot of uh, building blocks that they could build off of, such as the success of the Kinect, their multimedia efforts. Microsoft was getting really big into cloud-based computing as well. And all of this is going to factor into their next system, where they decided that it could be more than just another game console. Mm-hmm. Or rather, an all-in-one box that could be your central hub for all your entertainment needs, with no need to bother with any other system or service that wasn't already present on this Uber machine Microsoft wanted to sell you. And here we go with the Microsoftism. Yep. What if instead of just making games and providing a, a way to do to play them, Microsoft was the one who provided you with all this multimedia content up to and including making TV shows themselves. An aspect I forgot about until I did research about this. I also forgot about this aspect. <laughs> yeah. And what if it could all, Alex, here's the big thing though. What if it yeah. could all be digital with no need to buy physical products and more importantly for Microsoft, couldn't be resold and thus cause them to lose profits? That's. I- I need to stop myself from going off in this rant because we are reaching the apex collapse of the digital-only streaming era. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Like, it, it is dire, the state that it's in right now. It really is. It's, it's really funny that because the Xbox One is going to be way ahead of its time in many ways, mm-hmm. but in some ways, if it were to come out now, it's going to be feel very much too late. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing how it's going. It 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 is sort of pioneering, but like in a lot of the ways that end up being terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what if we did this 10 years later? Oh, that's bad. Mhm. That's right. Xbox One tried to do it first. <laughs> <laughs> and then other people Followed that and were more successful and created a nightmare scenario. <laughs> Shifts eyes towards Sony. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Sony's answer to the Xbox One and how all those things are just lies. Yep. Oh, man. That's going to be so good. <laughs> yeah, we are going to talk about how Microsoft's going to make a huge bet on the next console. How Sony's going to respond, and we're going to talk about how that's all going to be an abysmal failure. Mm-hmm. As, a, as we talk about the, next time, talk about the Xbox One, a system, oddly enough, that's going to be well ahead of its time in many ways and is going to be the harbinger of the doom of video game industry. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but that will be for next time. Alex, how are you feeling? I, oh man, this. Looking back on how the video game industry got where it currently is, is just like, it's this incredible journey of like, 
of, of just hindsight of like, yeah. oh, wow, that was a bad decision in ways you could not have possibly predicted. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we're all like, oh, huh, you just, you decided to do that, huh? Hmm. You, you decided to make a video game that if you want to get the entire plot, you have to watch a TV show. All right. Yeah, not cool. <sighs> Listen, I, I still <laughs> like Quantum Break, okay? I think it's not that bad when you get to play it. The 20% of the time that it's a video game, it's pretty fun. <laughs> oh, God, Quantum Break is so dumb. <laughs> I love Remedy, but man, they make some stupid choices sometimes. They really do. They're, they're, they're so lovable. They're such a lovably weird they're company. They're great, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's amazing, like, how much, like, of this story that I've, like, forgotten about. Like, mm-hmm. everything about, like, Don Matrix's rise to power, the... The fact that they got Netflix on there early and that how that like made them co- made them have the like the wrong conclusions about right where they should go with that to yeah just oh man the stuff that we're gonna get into about always online and stuff like that oh, next God. month next week yeah it's it's just it's just kind of crazy like how like Sega didn't torch their own legacy as hard no. as Xbox is going to do with this. For for all their best attempts to, yeah, no, they at least had, I think the problem to me, in my mind, is again, Microsoft makes all these moves, and they all work out, but they're all short-term profits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all like, wow, putting, X, putting Netflix on the 360 made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Therefore, putting multimedia on the Xbox is a move that will make money. And it's like, no, you filled a consumer need in the current market mm. you're not building something that's gonna like be profitable in 10 years yeah yeah no we're doing that like relying on a third-party app and then being like well okay yeah sure it's on other other platforms now what if we just had our own multimedia studios like no no and it's like part of that is going to be market forces beyond their control that like in five years oh my television can do that yeah like, yeah. the TV I'm hooking my Xbox up to can do that without the Xbox. So, oopsies. But, like, yeah. at the same time, it's like, seeing that short-term success and deciding that's the direction you need to go, rather than maintaining the foundation of what has kept you in the game this long, mm-hmm. is yeah. like, oh, that's there's the business school coming in. Yep. Yep. And, like, I need... <sighs> And, and it's something that like I think um, is really emblematic of the Matrix era compared to something like the Phil Spencer era of mm-hmm. like, yo, I need to be bigger than video games. Right. This needs to be bigger than video games. Right. And it's like, no, Microsoft is bigger than video games, but that's why they develop other products other than video games. Right. Whereas, let's tie it back to the beginning. Hey, you know what else is bigger than video games? What? Mario. Mm-hmm. Mario who is indeed bigger than video games. <laughs> and that isn't because Nintendo saw that, hey, Mario's successful, so let's pump out Mario until it dies. It was, let's turn Mario into a legacy that's going to endure for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I, it's a weird thing because I want to dispute that point. There are definitely points where they were like, hey, let's pump out some freaking Mario right now. And those are <laughs> arguably the worst parts of Mario's existence yeah looking at you all the new super mario bros games that were just the same game over and over again 
That's where my brain went, but I, I get exact point you're making. Mm -hmm. It's like they, they turned Mario into a legacy, and because they turned Mario into a legacy, right. that's where things like incredibly successful movies spring out from, right? Right. Yeah. But also, it wasn't just Mario. It was Zelda. It was Animal Crossing. Mm -hmm. It was their Pokemon. But mm -hmm. also the less popular things, like, yeah, Metroid doesn't sell Mario numbers, but you know what? Some people buy it, so let's maybe keep that at a decently high quality, aside from a few dips here and there. Yeah, yeah, they're they're willing to go, they're willing to go for like midterm profits, right? In a way that Microsoft at at a certain point in their history, I, I think it's very different now. But at a certain mm -hmm. point in the history, they were not willing to do so. Right. It had to be a home run. Yes. And like to be fair, Sony's going to be a little bit more guilty of this as well, but they're just going to make mm -hmm. up for it by being like, we're just going to just make all of the AAA games. Oh, oh, yeah! Don't ever let it be said that I lay no blame at Sony's feet for anything. <laughs> Boy, did Sony make some stupid fucking choices during oh, yes, the PS3 and PS4 era. Oh yes, and they today. Did. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, it's Sony's a. Sony is a company that will constantly trip over its own feed, but at least yes. when they do so, it's like, here's a new, another cool Naughty Dog game. You're like, okay, you're fine. Yeah, fine. All right, yeah, no, Spider-Man 2 is amazing. I agree. Yeah, Gear or God of War is still fun and decently well-written to the point that I can at least munch on it for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh... Wouldn't yeah. kill them to make a new wipeout once in a while, though. It, they really should. That'd be really great. Sure would. Uh, make a new wipeout. They'll make a new jet moto before they make a new wipeout. <laughs> and it'll just anger everybody when they do that. Yeah, because we'll all look at Nintendo and be like, yeah, where is our new wave race, Nintendo? <laughs> they will. It's going to be called Wave Race 99. It'll somehow be the best thing about <laughs> wave race in a long time. Oh man, when they get that 99 architecture working within 64 games, we are done. Yep. We are all screwed. <laughs> Mario Kart 64 99 comes out, we're just done. Oh, I'm surprised they haven't done that. It feels like F-Zero is like the test bed for that. It, it, it feels be, like right? F-Zero is like, hey, can we push this past the NES to the Super NES? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. How far? <laughs> Can we get Animal Crossing 99 going here? I'm honestly shocked they have not done that with Animal Crossing yet. That has to be brewing, right? It, it's got to be. Like an actual legit MMO Animal Crossing. We are getting so far off the plot. So this. far, but this is sort of the point of like, Nintendo saw this thing and they weren't just like flashing the pan, ex capitalize yeah. now, capitalize now. They were like... Where can we go with this? That is um that is one thing to say about Nintendo very consistently throughout the history is that they they rarely double down. They're more than right. happy to do just kind of whatever they want. Yeah, they're they're sort of they are able to let it cook. Mm -hmm. They're able to see that success and be like, okay, okay, interesting. What about? Yeah. Except with Pokemon. Pokemon, it's, they're all in. Yeah, yeah, Pokemon. Yeah, no, yeah, that's the, that is the one thing they're like. <laughs> We don't completely own all this IP. We're just going to just pump yeah. out as much money as possible. But Pokemon's paying for the rest of it. So, fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, I hope you all enjoyed our fun tangent about Nintendo. And next week, we're going to actually talk about the Xbox One and why it's an absolute abysmal failure. <sighs>
But in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Fallen Through Plot Holes, go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. You can also find us on YouTube. Just throw in Fallen Through Plot Holes and you will almost undoubtedly find us. Uh, you can also leave us a comment about your feelings about this show by emailing us at fallthroughplotholes at gmail.com. In fact, I encourage you to do so. Why don't you let us know what Microsoft franchise uh, that was once successful they let die? What was what was your favorite one? Was it Perfect Dark Zero? Are you a big <laughs> Gears of War Judgment fan? Okay, I don't think you can say that about Perfect Dark because the only time Perfect Dark was good wasn't even on a Microsoft console. Very true, but they're the ones who killed it. <laughs> Where's the new one, guys? How's that going? What's up? It's has, been like three years. That has been rumored for a while, hasn't it? They showed off a trailer. What? Wait! Oh, oh my god, you they did! You forgot about there was a Game Awards trailer for the new Perfect Dark. It's super real, except it's not. Oh god! <laughs> there's Yeah, there's a two-minute Perfect Dark trailer. I, I don't know what's going... No, Rare's not even making it. What am I talking about? They shipped it off to someone else. Yeah, the initiative. That game is so screwed, man. Yeah, that game is... That game's not going to be good. <laughs> no. Wow. Wow, yeah. No, I totally forgot about it. Probably because, yeah, you're. it's not going to be real. No, no. It's... <laughs> oh, man. But yeah. How about that? You know what? How about that? Email us your thoughts about what you want the next Perfect Dark game to be. Because it's not <laughs> yeah. like it's going to be real anyways. So nope. whatever. Go crazy. <laughs> Talk about how you think Dr. Carroll's sexy, even though he's just a laptop. I don't know. Sure. He's got dreamy eyes. But yeah. In the meantime, Alex, thank you for doing this with me as always. Of course. And take care, everyone. Take care.